0: Like a pen with no ink, and my brain forgot to think, but still I can hustle along on my muscle. A car with no gas. I know I'm not moving fast, but I still. of saints with faces of the homeless Made from ring, like a mystery unsolved, like a conflict resolved, like a song that won't end, a visit from an imaginary friend, a call from a distant relative.
1: Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast, and my name is Jason Barnard, and that was Elliot Murphy and Hope in Your Eyes from his new album, Wonder, and as always, that's because I've got Elliot Murphy here today to talk about his remarkable career, and um, his stuff now is as strong as the the stuff he was releasing in the 70s, and it's fantastic to hear. So uh, a huge welcome, Elliot. Thank you. Good to be here. Oh, great. Welcome to Yorkshire, England. Now, where exactly are you? The north of England, near Leeds. Are you you near Hull? Yeah, quite near Hull. Hull is where my grandfather was from. Wow. Yeah, this that's near where I am. Yeah,
2: he was from Hull, and he immigrated. He was, I think, his. I managed to when I first moved to France, I tried to get Irish citizenship because then I could have EU citizenship. And he's Irish, but it turned out that his parents had immigrated to Hull from Ireland, probably during the potato famine. He was in the English army for 20 years or something, and then he immigrated to America. Wow. It's amazing to see all those ties. So I'm I'm totally comfortable with you now,
1: knowing I'm in my, yeah. my uh, the heartland, my ancient heartland. Yeah, it's your roots. <laughs> Thank you very much for doing this. My pleasure. Wonder. It's your, your 40th album now, isn't it?
2: You know, the numbers get confusing because uh albums come out in different configurations i did a 10 series vintage albums of all kind of weird stuff do i count those in the thing but i think it's around that number 40th
1: the date of release which i think was the 23rd of september it was was it a tie with bruce springsteen there as well who you obviously have a connection with
2: well for some reason and i'm i'm not sure why in the music business you're supposed to release new music on fridays yeah I don't know if they think people have more time to listen over the weekend. It makes a greater impact. So I wanted to release it on a Friday. I actually wanted to release it on my son's birthday, which was, but that was a Wednesday before. So I said, why not? Or released it on Bruce's birthday. And I even sent him a message telling him as such. And he said, love it. So I got his blessing. He'd heard Hope in Your Eyes, hadn't he? He did hear Hope in Your Eyes. Yeah, I played that for him the last time. I saw him, I mean, not only have I had a very long relationship, just as friends, but my son, Gaspar, who produced the record, and that's why I wanted to play it for Bruce. He, he When he was in university studying studio production, Bruce brought him on the road for a tour to work with the sound crew there as kind of an, an apprentice, so I wanted to show Bruce what he could do now
1: and listening to the album as a whole wonder um, there's different themes there but um certainly a, a fair chunk of the tracks there's an optimistic element is that something you recognize
2: I think there is and maybe I don't know if it was subconscious that I want was looking for optimism during a very dark time because most of these songs were written when the covid pandemic was was just upon us and no one really knew what was happening I was in confinement here in, in France on uh, two times for long periods. And that's where most of them were started with the exception of one that I had written for a possible movie soundtrack. But most of them were written during that time. So I suppose I was certainly looking for that. And the opening cut, which you mentioned, Open Your Eyes, that came about because I was so just distraught like everybody else during the first confinement. And I said to my wife, Francoise, And she is just an eternal optimist, which for a French person is pretty rare, let me tell you. (laughs) And she said to me, Elliot, you've got to have hope. And that's, I wrote the first song. And then the rest came after that. But it was that time for me, the confinement, there was a lot of uh, to reexamine where I came from. And I found in these songs, lyrically, there's a lot of memories from the past which popped up, some which people will relate to, certainly in cultural figures I name, but others which are very personal to me, which no one will get but myself.
1: One of the other lead singles is "A Sunlight Keeps Falling. And and again, that seems to fit into that theme of optimism.
2: Yes. Sunlight Keeps Falling was the one song, though, that I kind of I don't know if I finished it during the time, but at least it was begun before the confinement. A good friend of mine named Nick Mead who's a, uh, a, a British uh, director, film director who lives in L.A. And he was making a film about Glenn Matlock. Yeah. And that's when I met uh, Nick here in, uh, in Paris with Glenn. It was lovely to meet him. And uh, we started, he also did a film about Clarence Clemens, Nick. And he had this other project, he had the script and it was about a girl who jumped off the Eiffel Tower And crashed into a car owned by a luthier (laughs) and he kind of took over her life and he was making guitars out of old church wood so that's where that uh like the second verse i say take me in your hands like a sacred piece of wood because that was kind of the storyline to that
1: so this is your first album certainly of, of new material since 2017
2: i think so jason i think uh prodigal son all new material we there was another album after that called ricochet which kind of was a conglomeration of a lot of different things uh some of it new songs that people may not have heard before and some live things i put out a kind of a spoken word album called middle kingdom that was poetry set to music most of the music being composed by my longtime guitar player Olivier Durand, who lives in La Havre But I would say I would call this really my first studio album since uh, 2017 Prodigal Son.
0: Say it, don't you know? Take me now, I feel it, I can say it, I can live it. Won't you take me now? I feel it, I can say it, I can live it. Take me now, I feel it, I can say it, I can live it. Sunlight is falling on me, but it's so dark I can hardly see. Voices talking, tell me go away, you are the reason I stay.
1: One of the other things that's been keeping you busy in, in recent years is, is your memoir, Just a Story from America. And I mean, obviously, you do have a background in, in, in terms of writing, and, and that does show such an interesting life story as well. We were talking about your grandfather, but your father had a huge influence on you. Maybe it's worth talking about your your early years. It's so fascinating.
0: Well,
2: Yeah. My memoir, which I call Just a Story from America, it really began with a short article I wrote about my mother that I was trying to get The New Yorker to publish. And uh, they were very encouraging, although they did not think it was right for them. And uh, I think it was David Remnick, who is the editor of The New Yorker. I think he mentioned to me, you should make this into a full memoir or something. And so that's what I started to do, and then again I was stuck, and Bruce's memoir had just come out, "Born to Run," and I, you know, I started writing, and sometimes it looked like a glorified discography, album by album, or just a music business history. And I, I called on Bruce. I said, "What, what's your advice?" And he said, "Well, I." In his book, he just tried to write about those things that were meaningful to him rather than writing about the things, the story he thought people would want to hear. So in some way, that advice, thank you, Bruce, unlocked the door. And uh, it's not told in exactly chronological fashion, but I tried to cover as much as my early days, and especially the early days with my father, because I lost him when I was just 16 and he was 48. And he he came from show business, and he had this show called the Aqua Show, which is what I called my first album uh, in nineteen seventy-three, and that really introduced me to this world of show business, you know, that I'm still in. So, I'm very grateful to him and to my mother in that there were. I mean, I think they would have liked me to become a lawyer or a doctor, but uh, he said when you're in show business, you've got to constantly reinvent yourself, and uh, that is true. But uh, there were no blocks. Against doing what I wanted to do, and when he bought me my first guitar, electric guitar, and Manny's Music in uh, New York City, which is where Jimi Hendrix used to get all his guitars, and and where uh, this was in 1962 or so, and where ten years later I had my own
1: picture on the wall there,
2: Manny's. You know, it was just one of the greatest moments of my
1: life. Also, hugely interesting was that like it might have been in, in your teens uh, before you were recording. But while you were writing songs, you were traveling in Europe. I was, you know, I had a pretty affluent lifestyle until I
2: until my father passed away. He was successful. He had the successful show, the Aqua Show, that ran for ten years on the site of the World's Fair in outside of New York City. Duke Ellington played there. Cab Calloway played there. A lot of comedians started there. But when he died, and he died at a bad time, everything just fell apart in my family. And when I went to Europe in 1971, I had missed the summer of love in San Francisco in 67. But the word was, in Amsterdam, it was still happening in 1971. And I, My sister was a stewardess on Pan Am, so she was able to get a family discount ticket and I was able to fly to Amsterdam for next to nothing. And uh, when I landed in Europe, it just like the whole existential weight of grief and my family's problems, it just left me. It was the old world, but for me, it was my new world, really. And I started in Amsterdam. The guy I went with, he had a nice old Martin guitar, so I was playing guitar and writing songs. And then uh, we went to Brussels. We went to Paris. Finally, to Rome, where I stayed the longest time. I did a tiny bit part in a Fellini movie, well, Fellini Roma. But I think that trip really marked me, and my love for for Europe really, uh, really settled in. At the very end of that trip, we went to London, and uh, stayed with some very cool guys in Earl's Court, and they said, "Listen, there's this new hamburger place that just opened off High Park." Let's go try it out. And it was the Hard Rock Cafe. The first one had just opened Ah, in uh, there. And uh, they said, we think, they say Bill Wyman invested in it or something. But uh, so I have the grand distinction of uh, eating a cheeseburger and a milkshake at the first Hard Rock Cafe.
1: There's a tenuous tie in relation to our next track, which is Last of the Rock Stars. But in the early 70s and the late 60s, there was, a, you know, a number of pivotal deaths janice joplin Jimi hendrix uh jim morrison etc so w- was that percolating in your mind in terms of why that came out
2: it was definitely i was i remember distinctly being in a coffee shop in uh, amsterdam and reading the someone there was a rolling stone there and reading about jim morrison had died i think he died was it the year before or so i know he died on july 3rd i think and uh that really put the seed of that song, "The Last of the Rock Stars," because it just turned from this garden of Eden, and then all of a sudden, you know, Janis Joplin was gone, and Brian Jones was gone, and uh, and Jimi Hendrix, and uh, and that was where you know rock and roll is here to stay. But who will be left to play? Which was the chorus of that song. So, yeah, luckily rock and roll survived for a long time. Although now I'm not so sure. <laughs>
1: It doesn't seem that long when you had a clutch of, of fantastic songs going back to the New York scene with those great songs uh, in terms of getting signed up from uh, by Polydor.
2: It happened in, in a way that was very normal back then, which today could never happen because there are so many walls. You know, today record companies want an artist to have, you know, a half a million followers on the Instagram before they even listen to them, you know but what happened i i came back to new york i had this batch of songs and with my brother matthew i put together we put together a band in garden city and we started playing the places in uh, new york there was a very vibrant club scene happening in new york at that time and the new york dolls were just beginning and Patti smith was beginning kiss was beginning there and we made a demo tape and we had gone to see various record companies and gotten, you know, Warner Brothers liked us, but the West Coast had to approve it. And it was hard to get to Columbia because Clive Davis uh, uh, had signed Bruce Springsteen, you know. Yeah. And my brother said, why don't we try Polydor? I, I did not even know how I knew the name. And we just walked in and the receptionist was there. And I guess you liked the way we looked because we had all our cool clothes we had worn. We had bought in Europe, and she said, can I help you? And, and we said, can someone listen to our demo? <laughs> and she said, now? We looked at each other, and we said, yeah, now. So she made a phone call, and the assistant AR person there, who I will always be in debt to, a lovely woman named Shelly Snow, came out. She took us back into a little room, and it was a reel-to-reel, our demo, and she listened to it and liked it and said, uh, Listen, can you guys in a week come in and do a audition for the head of ANR here, Peter Siegel? We said sure. What I didn't know was Peter Siegel and Shelley Snow were married, ah. so she probably knew his taste very well. And Peter came out of the the Greenwich Village folk scene. He was in a band called the Even Dozen Jug Band that was uh, produced by Paul Rothschild, right. I think John Sebastian, maybe from. Uh, love and spoonful was in that band so we came back in a week later we set up and we i went through a played five or six songs for peter and he said well if you want to be a polydor recording artist you know come meet me next week and it just happened very that part happened very quickly and then as the chinese say every great journey begins with a crooked little road we had to find a producer and uh Loudon Wainwright had just had a very big hit with a song called Dead Skunk in the Middle yeah. of the Road. I love Loudon, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, his producer was Thomas Jefferson K. So they said, let's hook you up with him. And we were sent out to L.A. to work with him. And we did one day in a studio with him. And he, it was just not what I wanted. It was turning me very country. And I didn't want to be. I love country music, but uh, that wasn't me and uh i called up peter and i said this is not happening i have to come back and he said well i don't know if i can get polydor to find you another producer i'll produce it myself so we came back he put together this marvelous band which was uh frank owens on the keyboards who had played with bob dylan on highway 61 the drummer from the birds i mean just really great musicians and me and my brother matthew and we recorded at the record plant uh, and while we were upstairs on the 10th floor, because the record playing in New York had two studios, one upstairs on the 10th floor, and um, the big one on the first floor, the New York Dolls were making their second album, I think, on the first floor. We would visit them, and it was like total, it was like a Roman orgy down there, you know, <laughs> whereas up where I was, it was like a, a monk's uh, <laughs> prayer session, you know. <laughs> And uh, we had to record at night because Peter had to work during the day at Polydorm And we had a great engineer named Shelly Yakis. And the album just came out uh, just how I wanted it. i tour with the kinks i got to meet ray J- ray davies and get to know him a little bit uh, at the time there was talk of him uh, producing my next album because he had started a label called kunk yes and uh, we toured with the jefferson starship but Polydor, although today it's a very established label in america it was not at the time and they were kind of hapless they just couldn't we'd go to boston and do great shows and we found out they didn't have any albums for sale in boston you know things like that so out of nowhere lou reed appeared and i had spoken to lou i'd never really met him but i had spoken to him because i had written the liner notes for a velvet underground album live 1969 yeah lou uh had actually called my mother because that was the number that the record company person, gave to Lou and and had a long chat with her. And when I I got back to her apartment, she said, oh, this very nice boy called me Louis Reed. <laughs> now, my mother is 90, was 92. She passed away a few years ago. Yeah. And she still, to that day, remembered what Lou said to her. Because at the end of the conversation, she told Lou, she said, my son will be very happy that you called him. And Lou said, why? <laughs> And my mother said, oh, because he's a big admirer of yours. And Lou said, isn't everybody? <laughs> so Lou started coming to my shows mainly at Max's Kansas City because he liked hanging out there. And he said, you got to get a Polydor. you got to get on RCA. And he was really the one that then pushed me to sign with RCA Records, who did them paid a pirate's ransom to polydor to buy out my contract
1: there was talk about lou producing you but that didn't end up uh happening did it that was part of the plan i would go to rca and lou
2: would produce me but then lou got arrested yeah. they kept it very quiet it was for a, a drug thing kind of a i think fake prescriptions he got arrested in a drugstore trying to a, a pharmacy and that kind of Detoured Lou from doing anything serious. He was also, uh, it was a crazy time in his life, I would say. And uh, I remember when I thought he was going to produce me, I went to his uh, house once, his apartment. We lived about ten blocks apart, and we were going over the songs and till about six o'clock in the morning. And I said, "Lou, I got to get some sleep." He said, "Okay, okay." So I went back to sleep, and like two hours later, the phone rang. And it was Lou. And he said, are you ready to start again? <laughs> so I think there were definitely some synthetic materials, you know, mm. involved there too. But I, I'm still grateful to Lou for the interest he took in me and my in my work.
1: Deco Dance on, on Nightlights has got another incredible figure in, in rock history, Billy Joel on. So great piano there. How, how did uh, he get involved?
2: Billy is a Long Islander. Like me. And uh, I had seen Billy play in his band, The Hassles, when I was 18, many times along. And he was a phenomenon. Anyone who saw him knew he was going to explode. And uh we got to know each other again when I moved into the city. And uh I'm not sure who, but I, I think I opened some shows for him. And I asked him if he'd want to play the piano on Deco Dance, and he did, and he he came in and just did it in one take. I mean, it was just totally improvised and, and brilliant. And, uh, you know, we've we kind of been friends ever since. In 2018, I think I was inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame, and Billy Joel inducted me with a very nice speech. And, uh, and then he invited me to play to perform with his band at Madison Square Garden and I sang uh, Walk on the Wild Side by Lou another Long Island guy so kind of the circle was connected
0: one way or another they're gonna get you soon they're gonna crush your banana They're gonna blow your balloon One way or another Your face is gonna fall But you're still smiling, your river You'll just be a little wet A oh, baby, that's all I heard you say that you never quoted for quite what you mean And you said that your pictures never really ring true And you don't think that the media will ever catch you Tech Deco Ball You dressed down, but you really gave that smile your all And pretty soon, like a primal, your scream Baby, that the past is the only
1: Such a strong album, Nightlights, and another highlight is you never know what you're in for. And another fantastic figure involved in that record as well, Doug Yule, who took over John Cale in the Velvets and, and doesn't really get his due for how he supported Lou and the rest of the group through the latter Velvet albums.
2: Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I don't think it's necessary to compare the two, but for me, there were almost two Velvet Undergrounds. There was the one with John Cale, which was very experimental, very important. And then there was the with Lou with Doug Yule which culminated in that fantastic album Loaded, which not only has Sweet Jane but rock and roll and new age. I mean, these are some of Lou's most important songs. And I just love that album. And I was listening to that album when I was uh, recording Aqua Show. That was really the soundtrack. And Steve Katz who was producing uh nightlights who was dennis cat's brother dennis was my manager at the time and lou's manager he was starting a super group with doug yule what was it called american flyer maybe something like that i think they did one album or two albums because lou had gotten back in touch with yule i think lou always appreciated yule yeah and uh that's how i got to know him. and i was just thrilled to have him on the album because i love his voice he sang a lot of the backgrounds on that album. He played some really nice guitar. And uh, he does not get his due.
1: What was the the music scene like in the mid-70s? Because you've just got so many great artists. You've got places like uh, Max's. And a lot's written about it now. But obviously, you, you were there directly involved in that scene. It was
2: a great scene, but it was changing. It was definitely in a in a period of evolution. Because when I first came in, came back from Europe in 71, it was kind of the glam scene was going on. So, you know, there was the New York Dolls who are now kind of looked at as the precursors of the punks, but they were really a glam band in a way. And Max's Kansas City had a very eclectic programming there. I mean, I think there was a Bruce Springsteen show that the Whalers opened for, or he opened for the Whalers. There were lots of interesting singer-songwriters, and there were many places to play. There was not. There was a place called Kenny's Castaways. A bunch of good places to play. Then CBGs opened up. Yeah, kind of the mid seventies. Now CBGBs has just become iconic in its importance, and some of the music and artists that it launched certainly are important. But I'm telling you, that place was a dump. <laughs> I never liked it. God, there was, you know, two inches of piss on the toilet Mm. floor. I mean, and the owner was a hilly. He was famous for just letting his dogs crap all over the place. I mean, it was a dump. But some great bands came out of there and actually a more eclectic. And I think really the, you know, the golden age of CBGBs was much shorter than people realize because pretty quickly, you know, the Ramones and Patti Smith and um, television, they went on to to bigger venues you know pretty quickly uh but there were a lot of eclectic things happening there too robert gordon for instance you know who was anything but a punk he came out of cbgb's too but so the scene was changing the one difficult part for me was that it was a hard time for singer-songwriters yeah we were not uh and although i was never a singer-songwriter in the mold of like james taylor or don mclean or someone like that because i never came from folk
3: no
2: i came from rock so i i always say i'm not folk rock i'm rock folk or whatever that is <laughs> i was still it was difficult for singer-songwriters you know and and lyrics you know became less important i think uh so by the end of the 70s i had like climbed up the rock and roll mountain i'd been on three labels three major labels released four albums and boom then i fell off and there was like nowhere to go and it was a long slide down
0: just a trace of the old coming down ancient fun one and one he said someday we'll leave of this town but magazines glamour scenes in betweens had a Try to forsake it But you know you're gonna take it You never, never know, know what you're in for By the time he was nine There were signs of an old melody He tried to list what he missed Just a kiss, was not real or TV? You can say a rehearse. Try to forsake it, but you know you got to take it. You never know what you're in for. But anyway, he said, hey, I'm going to stay. Baby, please don't cry. It's just rough to stay tough, full of lust, and be a walk-in. I see you and I'm through with that God who demands such a lie. But you gotta get by, we'll get by. And we're all junkies and pushers, of pimps and hookers. You never know what you're in. Can't shake it, try to forsake it, but you know you gotta take it.
1: The third label that you were on was uh, Columbia. And so it was all changing in a way because your album, Just a Story from America, re- recorded for Columbia, was recorded at the incredible Air Studios over here in uh, London.
2: I really wanted to record in London. For my generation who, when we saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, it was an epiphany and London was just the Mecca. And I also thought that the albums being recorded there, for somehow they were stronger. I don't know, they said the English engineers let the, uh, let the levels go into the red more than the American engineers, but they were really strong. So I wanted to record in London for Columbia. Uh, from the beginning, that was. And I went there, interviewed a lot of different uh, engineers and producers. I think I wanted to record it in Olympic Studios, which was where yeah. the Stones had done so much. But that was not available, and the producer I ended up using, Robin Jeffrey Cable, who had been an engineer at Trident Studio, and a lot of people credit him with that incredible Trident sound, which can, he engineered a lot of Elton John albums, the great Carly Simon single "You're So Vain," and he uh, he brought me to Air Studios.
1: Was it through Robin that um, Phil Collins got involved playing on drums on that? It was
2: the only person i brought into that mix was mick taylor yeah because i had met him he had signed to uh cbs international and when i met him at a cbs international congress there was held in london and i asked him if he would play in my album he said if if there was a song that suited him he he would and that's why i wrote rock ballad because i thought that would be a song he could play on it's kind of a a blues, and uh, all the rest, Phil Collins. Uh, Robin Cable had worked with Phil on another band, a, a side project of Phil's uh, outside of Genesis. Was it Brand X? Exactly. He had produced ground, uh, Brand X. And I didn't really see the connection between my music and what I knew of Phil on Genesis, but he was wonderful. He was just and one of the funniest guys I have ever met in the studio. He just kept us laughing and just great and i remember having a discussion with him because uh peter gabriel had left genesis and i asked phil what are you going to do and he said well you know we've auditioned so many singers i'm so disgusted i might just start singing myself and that's what he did
1: it's a great sounding album the songs are as strong as as anything around at the time drive all night is a clear example of a song that even now is is recognized as a great song. There was a campaign as well in terms of support by Columbia for that, but it just seems that you just couldn't get that hit record and was the tricky thing. There were a lot of elements at play.
2: You know the term a perfect storm, when so many elements combine to create just conditions at sea that no boat could survive, and that's kind of what happened to my boat at Columbia. Columbia was my management, Lieber Krebs, who managed uh, Aerosmith and Ted Nugent, ACDC for a short while. They were having some problems there. And I was part of a production deal at Columbia. And they kind of wanted them to trim their roster. And when I got back to America, I put together another English band because I wanted that same sound. And that just did not work at all. I mean, as wonderful as the musicians i worked with in London with, the guys that I worked with in America, I think they all had were looking to do their own career. It was Jerry Shirley on drums. Yeah. From Humble Pie. Les Nickel, a guitar player. I'm not sure who he played with. A lovely man named Peter Wood on keyboards who co-wrote Year of the Cat, I think. Yeah. And an American bass player, a left-handed bass player named Larry Russell, went on to play with Billy Joel. So we went on tour opening for ELO, but that band never really gelled as a unit and uh so i stopped the tour and i think i was just so disheartened that i didn't have the energy i really needed to kind of force the thing to really go but it is a shame because that album has a has achieved um classic status you know it,
1: By the early 80s, in a way, even though you had difficulties, you became a pioneer and you became independent and was making the records yourself and distributing them yourself. It was oftentimes here in Europe, but they will refer to
2: me as the first of the independent artists. But it was it was never a decision I made consciously. But because I had come to Europe and I knew that here there was something called licensing, where people would produce their own records and license to labels. Ooh. We did that with a little, uh, an EP called Affairs, which was a six-song EP. Yes. I got some time at the record plant because I had done two albums there already. Uh, my girlfriend at the time invested some money. My brother became my business partner in that. And uh, we did very well with that album. We, with that EP. We licensed it to a few companies in Europe. And then in, in America, we established our own company called Cordesane. And there was one uh, store in New York, I think it was called Crazy Eddie. It was a very famous record store at the time. And they were just selling them like crazy. And they called the office, but my brother was on tour. He was a tour manager, too. And I think he was on tour with Robert Gordon or maybe the Talking Heads. And they ordered more albums. I said, "Okay, we'll bring them right down to you. And i got this box of 25 albums because no one was there to do it but me and i walk in and i see the manager and he i said you ordered the elliot murphy albums and he looks at me and says aren't you elliot murphy i said yes he said you deliver the albums yourself i said yes he said well how <laughs> come i said well after being on four majors you know now i just want total artistic control from from point a to point z so i bring you the records myself but that, that really started I have had a little, a few dalliances with the majors since then. I did an album for WEA, the 80s called Party Girls and Broken Poet. I was on uh, CBS, well, Columbia in Sweden for a while. So, but uh, to the most part, I've been an independent artist.
1: And so by the mid 80s, you've got the album Milwaukee. Another highlight of yours, going through something, don't know what it is, and you mentioned Talking Heads briefly earlier, but I think you were working with uh, Jerry Harrison on that album, weren't you? Exactly, Jerry Harrison.
2: I met when he was in the Modern Lovers with Ernie Brooks, and they actually opened for the New York Dolls at the Mercer Arts Center in uh, nineteen. Ooh, when was that? Seventy-two, maybe. It was just an uproarious evening, and uh, I don't think it started till like two in the morning. And then Jerry and Ernie were in my band for a while and played on half of Nightlights, and then Jerry went on to be in the Talking Heads, and uh, I was playing kind of a resident. My band had a residence at a club called Tramps in New York City, which was kind of a blues a blues club. And Jerry would come and see us all the time, and. Uh, He liked the band. He liked the music. Ernie Brooks was still playing with me. And there were always a lot of pretty girls hanging around there. So he liked that, too. And he invited me out to Milwaukee, where he came from and where he was now working with a studio there. And uh, he produced this album called Milwaukee, 1985.
1: A few years later, an album of yours, twelve. We talked about you being independent, but as technology moved on as well and, and got cheaper, that album was kind of one of the first where it was more home recording as opposed to the record plant.
2: Twelve was my twelfth album, thus the title. I can't believe we're talking now about the fortieth album. I thought that was <laughs> a big number. Twelve and digital technology was growing, and they, had, Panasonic, had come out with a portable two-track digital recorder that recorded on dat dat you remember what those were yeah and so I bought one of those and uh set up a little studio in uh in Paris in Bastille but there were no overdubs mm. there was no overdubs on that album everything was live. And we'd have to get it, or if we made a mistake, we'd do it again. But we we were well-prepared. Me and Ernie Brooks was living in Paris at the time. We report, recorded partly there. We recorded partially in a, in a club in Switzerland called La Dolce Vita. And uh, I think that was my last official vinyl release. Then it, then it pretty much went to CDs after that. And it was a... Uh, Oh, I don't know if it was a double album, but it was. um... And most of the songs were all written when I first moved to Paris in 1989. Played my first gig here in 1979. My career was really down in America. And all of a sudden, I discovered I had this audience in France and all over Europe that I wasn't aware of. And in the 10 years between 89, I moved here. Been here ever since. So most of those songs were written with this exuberance of this second act that I was starting in my life here in France and in Europe.
1: Interesting that you say that on that album, is on Elvis Presley's birthday, one of the landmark songs for many of your songwriting. And you've got that distance from the States in a way. So was that an element of writing that song? I think so. I think by moving,
2: I don't think I've become very french since i moved to france some said become more american and i think by moving and being able to look back at america and my experience there it enabled me to kind of incorporate it emotionally into songs that it would have been impossible to do in america on elvis presley's birthday is one of those one of my few songs that actually began as a poem and it was published in a, a literary journal in france called uh Uh, Le Nouvelle Revue de Paris, and then I put music to it. You know, it's almost a spoken word kind of song. And it just amazes me, Jason, is that everywhere I play that song, and it can be in Italy and Spain and Belgium, the response is fantastic, you know. So sometimes it's not so much the meaning of the words, but it's just the emotional content that the words convey you know and that's the mystery of it all
1: and that emotion definitely comes through this social history there but there's a very strong personal element and connection in relation to your father and memories and there's that reference to picking coal near the train tracks
2: yeah well my father was grew up during the depression the great depression and his family was quite poor his father when mentioned before was a blacksmith and uh set up shop in brooklyn when he immigrated from hull and uh they were so poor sometimes just to get coal to put in the fireplace he had they had to go down where and find pieces that had fallen off the uh the railroad cars the coal cars so what's amazing about that song is i can't tell you how many times people have come up to me who have lost their father and they relate to that song but nothing in common with the history of my story of course but that they relate so strongly to the the song and it's so gratifying it doesn't get more gratifying than that
0: I say that I love this place where I live This particular geographic location But I've grown used to it And now I miss it when I'm away Of course, when I was a kid My father would take me with him down to the Bowery Where the bums were And in the restaurant supply stores He would buy shiny steel refrigerators And deadly looking stoves While I begged him to take me to the Army-Navy surplus stores on Canal Street To buy big, dead bullets He wore a short corduroy jacket An informal hat with a puff of feather And he talked with his hands in his pants pocket Jangling chains Driving in his Cadillac, it was Elvis Presley's birthday, they said it on the radio, my father liked Elvis and it was wonderful. We drove through black neighborhoods on Long Island's North Shore when Elvis was alive. father was from Brooklyn and the depression left its mark from picking up coal on the railroad tracks he didn't have a good word to say about Franklin Delano Roosevelt later I liked elegant hotel bars where I could drink under F. Scott Fitzgerald skies Coolest of the cool, never a child. On Elvis Presley's birthday, my dead father, jangling chains. This is an unreal city. You can be anybody you want to be when you're alone.
1: By the mid 90s, another song of yours, Everything I Do Leads Me Back to You. And, and that features uh, Bruce Springsteen, who we discussed at the start. And was that a period where you'd reconnected back with Bruce? It was.
2: I met Bruce when he first played at Max's in the 70s, because, before I even recorded Aqua Show, because uh, a guy named Paul Nelson, who was a famous rock critic, and at the time he was working for Mercury Records he brought me to see bruce play and i met bruce there and then i got to know him later in the 80s a little bit when he was just doing these monumental shows it was like west side story i mean the lighting and everything and he had just exploded as a performer he was as the french say a bétserlessant a beast on the on the stage and uh he was coming to europe to play and i got a call from sony records now when was this uh bah, 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 sometime in, right after i moved here saying that bruce springsteen was coming to town and was looking for me <laughs> only time sony france has called me i could. and uh we got in touch and we hung out a little and he invited me on stage and we did my song rock ballad together in front of twenty thousand people you know i can't emphasize what a generous guy he is you know i not only me, but he has brought so many other performers on stage with him. You know, and I don't know anyone else who does that with such regularity and such sincerity as Bruce Springsteen. So, this song "Everything I Do Leads Me Back to You." uh There's a, a lyric in there that's very car influenced. You know, when I'm rolling on my rims, uh, and I was in New York or New Jersey, I went out to see Bruce, and I played him the song, and I asked him if he he could sing on it sing the choruses he said sure so uh I went back to we recorded that that album in Belgium at ICP studios and uh they were just converting to digital te- technology and so I said to Bruce I said what should we send you to do this work on do you have like an an ADAT do you know when you know what ADATs were they were eight track digitals or a DAT player or do you want it just on a cassette and he said, well, actually, Sony just sent me over 2 true 32-track digital machines, which are sitting in the kitchen, so I'll hook them up, and we can do it on that. Then I didn't hear from him for a few months later. We had sent him the basic tracks, and then one night, the phone rang. It was like 4 o'clock in the morning, and it was Bruce. And he said, I did it. I did it. And I was like, sound asleep. Yeah, well, you, you did what? Yeah, sang on your song. But I said, wow. And he sang so much more than I asked him for. He took a whole verse on for himself and sang all the choruses. That's the kind of guy he is. So I love that song and I love it, you know, for what he did to it because he he gives it such a gravitas. You know, he's just got that. He has an emotional believability in his voice that is uh, undescribable. And uh, yeah, I hope there will be other times, and then many years later uh patty Scialfa was his wife who was a marvelous singer and artist on her own she contributed backing vocals on a song called i am empty from a later album that gaspar my son produced so i may be the only artist who has had both <laughs> husband and wife team Springsteens singing with them
0: Everything I do leads me back to you. I see me standing in the acid rain, A full of existential pain. Or you can look for love so long. Until you're sure you'll never feel so good again Then you came along Like an angel, like a lover, like a friend Yeah, everything I do Everything I do Leads me back to you Well, I'm a man without a place Sometimes afraid to show my face you Hear me humming in the night When you turn out the light, They can blow my tires out Till I'm filled up with nothing else Till I'm rolling on my rim. Oh baby, come in back to you again. Yeah, everything, everything I, I do, everything I do, leads me back to you. Oh when I'm on the rise, oh when it's do I die or oh, lullaby. you take an alibi if I said it was you and I further on Cause it's everything, everything I, I do Everything I do everything I do. Everything, everything I do Leads me back to you You know it's hard for a man to sing When his pride blocks everything You can have a way with words when your thoughts they can't be heard but don't take it the wrong way like half the things i ever tried to say well i got my demons too But my angels, they're all cheering for you Cause everything I do Everything I do It leads me back to you Yeah, everything I do Everything I do Leads me back to you Everything I do Everything I do, It leads me back to you Yeah, everything I do Everything I It leads me back to you Everything
1: Back to you. Yeah, everything and you mentioned earlier that perhaps you're um rock folk and next we have a fantastic collaboration you did about 20 years ago with ian matthews and the song i want to talk to you Ian Moore from the folk rock tradition, but a wonderful melding of songwriters, styles, and artists. How did that come about? I knew about Ian Matthews because of a guy named
2: Charlie Hunter, who was my manager for a brief period. He was a huge fan of Ian Matthews and of me too. And he always said, you you guys got to get together and do something. So I was aware of Ian. He had had a hit with Joni Mitchell's Woodstock, he had a wonderful album called In Search of Amelia Earhart. Yeah. And then we both ended up on the same label in Germany called Blue Rose. And Edgar Heckman, who ran that label, came up with the same idea. You two should do an album together. So it all came together kind of fast. And I got a studio in Le Havre where I had been recording and a book time there. Two days before we were going to start recording, Ian called me to say he decided he didn't want to do the project. <laughs> And I just read him the riot act. You have got to do this project. <laughs> and I assured him it'll be painless. And I'm so glad he changed his mind because that album came out so great. And we did Blind Willie McTell by uh, Bob Dylan. We did a great song called One Cold Street by a songwriter, a singer-songwriter named Adam Sherman. And I added a few originals. We did uh, Sad Eyes by Bruce Springsteen. And I I threw in a few originals, and so did uh, Ian. Interesting thing about that album is Ian's a guitar player. My guitar player, Olivier Duran, was there, who's just a virtual. So, So I didn't play any guitar. I just played bass. I took over kind of the Nick Lowe. Apparatus on that album.
1: Was he in? Was he based in Europe at the time? I know he'd lived in in the US, and he was based in Amsterdam,
2: I think, at right. that time. But I had met him a few years before at the South by Southwest festival in Austin, where I was showcasing, and Ian was there as well, so we kind of hooked up again. Yeah, but he was based in Holland by that point.
0: Make it too Cause a desperate man He's here waiting for you. you I wanna talk to 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 you
1: And the songs just keep coming. Another highlight, you've got Come On Luan here. And, and you mentioned uh, Olivia earlier, writing with him and his role in, in your music. It's only grown and grown over the years.
2: Olivia Geron is a La uh, Havre native. You know, La Havre is north of France there. And uh, we've been playing together now, I think, for 26 years. Literally half my career, which was approaching the 50 year mark soon. And just a virtuoso guitar player, a great touring partner, because he never gets too flustered about anything. And uh we co-write a lot of songs together as well. I think we co-wrote Come on No Anne. Usually how that works, I'll have a song like 80% finished or something, but it needs a strong middle eight or it needs a good chorus or something. And He'll come in when musically. He hasn't contributed really any lyrics, with the exception of the song called Ground Zero, which I wrote after visiting Ground Zero after 9-11, and he did a verse in French about that as well. But he's really been my musical partner. He is the mainstay of my musical experience for a very long time.
1: And on that album, uh, Soul Surfing, was uh, Danny Montgomery, a drummer
2: yeah, Danny is just a great guy, funny, full of jokes. And he was living in Paris for a while too, and that's how I hooked up with Danny. and him and on come on Lewen, him and Ernie Brooks, who played bass on that, the two of them just gelled like amazing rhythm section there. And Danny played with me a long time. And then he moved to uh to Spain. He kind of spends his time between spain and and l a. And I uh, found another musician in La Havre called Alan Fatras, who was a friend of Olivier's, and he's been playing with me now for over 10 years.
0: Take this man Come on, Luan You know I'm trying to maintain But your excuses are in vain Come on, Luan If there's a reason why I'm here Well, you better make it clear Come on, Luan A Sunday we'll laugh together So bad, you look so good, and I'm so sad. I could never break your heart, and you knew that from the start, didn't you, Luann? You had no other place to go, so you put on a good show and knocked me out the way. You made me think I was the one you robbed my love without a gun, didn't you, Luann? Can you make it on a stand when you're living hand to hand? Tell me who I am. Someday we'll laugh together and relive the past together. Ah, but tonight I'm feeling so sad. You're looking good and I'm so bad.
1: It's written sometimes that um, you haven't had a hit, but I don't think that is correct because a touch of kindness, certainly in relation to Spotify, has taken off like a train. In re- I think we're up to two million listens, and it's probably grown since I looked at it. It's just connected with people. Took me totally by
2: surprise. One day I just looked at those numbers and I was like five hundred thousand, and then I looked a week later, it was like eight hundred, and now. It's over 2 million. I don't know how that happened, but oh, very thankful it did. My son, Gaspar, who sometime is it was, it was now a music producer and has had some hits in the, the French music world. I was saying to him recently, I said, you know, I've never had a hit. And he said to me, well, dad, I think we got to say that a 50-year career is kind of a hit in itself. <laughs> so I'm going by that. But Spotify and all of that, I know some musicians have, songwriters and artists have problems with it, but for me it's been a godsend. A song like A Touch of Kindness, just as you said,
1: just seems to be appealing to people all over the world. Sometimes the best songs are the simplest. I mean, the perfect example of that is uh, Buddy Holly's Every Day. There's a little bit of that feel and that simplicity in relation to A Touch of Kindness, and, and maybe that's one of the things that's really striking people. Could be
2: there was a tribute album to Buddy Holly that I performed every day. Ah, it was called "Every Day is a Holiday." It was put out by New Rose Records in France, and I did every day. So, yeah, I think I think that is true. I think there's uh, it has that wonderful secondary melodic line that uh, Olivier plays, and we go wild with that on stage. It's just really a showcase moment for Olivier's uh virtuosity.
0: Start a little bit of sweetness that won't tear you apart. You'll be there in a minute. If you believe me, you'll be exactly where you wanna be with a little touch of kindness. Are you misleading? Or are you playing a game? Well then what are the rules and does the winner have something to gain? It's the champion season of the utterly confused Played on a mountaintop in India or on the beaches of Veracruz It's a little touch of kindness for a start A little bit of sweetness that won't tear you apart You'll be there in a minute if you Exactly where you want to be With a little touch of kindness Station a station Across the nation Lost my religion And my superstition
1: And another way that people have connected with you is um, the fantastic documentary film about your career. And it does cover that aspect that you talked about, is that your persistence of continuing over that 50-year period, documentary being the second act of Mm -hmm. Elliot Murphy. And that must have been um, quite a moment when your story has been recognised and also put to film.
2: It was the idea of a Spanish director who started coming around to shows with just his camera, and then a little bigger crew, and at one point he said, you know, I think we really got the makings of a good film here. And uh, there's a famous quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald, who's my favorite author, which says, there are no second acts in American lives. And that's where the title came from, the second act of Elliot Murphy. That movie won a very nice award at a Spanish film festival. And then there was a point where Jorge, who was the director, said, you know, it needs something else. It needs... I need to interview someone important. And so I asked Bruce if he would do it. Sure, no problem. And then I got back in touch with Billy Joel because I found a picture of me and Billy and Dr. John. And Dr. John had recently passed away
3: yeah.
2: that I gave to Billy, just a photo. And so I asked Billy if he'd do it. And he said, sure. And they're both in the film saying such nice things about me they would never say to my face probably (laughs) it's a very interesting film and it was like a cathartic experience for me because you know like most people i'm not different from anyone else we kind of go through our lives in chaos you know we're making the best decision we can with the information at hand and when i looked at that film it all looked like it was a very well laid out plan leading (laughs) to where i am today talking to you
1: And I thought it'd be very fitting to close with a song that you mentioned earlier, Rock Ballad, which uh, Mick Taylor features on. And again, it's got echoes of some of the great ballads like the Otis Reading would do, for example. Was that something that you were aiming for in a way? Definitely. I was definitely trying to write my own, I've Been Loving You Too Long,
2: something like that. And as I said, it was written for Mick Taylor to play on. I think I wrote it in a hotel room in London uh, right before that we started the sessions. And uh, the last line of that song, and when the moon was just right, we could turn out the lights and just listen. And these days at my shows, that's how we end the concerts and just listen, because in a way... In many ways, the music has become overshadowed by the visual effects of so many concerts, now the fireworks, the lighting, mm. the costumes and everything else. And uh, I think it's important to just listen.
1: That's a great way to finish on. And um, just before we go, a huge plug for your new album, Wonder. Your website, which is the handily titled elliottmurphy.com, where, where people can get to too well, too <laughs> yeah, to know more about all the stuff that's going on in your career.
2: They certainly can. If You know, I'm at a very nice place in terms of fame and celebrity because if I get stopped on the street by someone, it's usually a very nice encounter when someone likes my music. If you come to enough of my shows... We'll get to know each other. You know, I have some fans who come to 40 shows a year and we hang out after the shows and get to know each other. So, yeah, bring it on. We need more new faces. And I hope to get to the UK and back to play Oh,
1: soon. Brilliant. Well, that would be amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Elliot. It's been such a, a privilege to talk to you today and, and talk about your music and r- remarkable life. Thank you so much, and uh, yeah, I hope to see you one day in person. Hope to see you. See you down the road. Take care then. You too, Jason.
0: And we'd hold on so tight, you could hear crystal stars as they'd glisten. Lovers in vain like to walk in the rain, like to hear distant trains of motion. And on late radio, we could play it so low, and no one must know this devotion. Got cool, like how hustler shook pool, and soon your whole life is spent faking, cause to try is to fail, and as the wind left your sails, all you heard was the sound of their laughter, but I was running so fast, with the wind racing past, all I heard was a voice say go after her.